Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. I'm here in our studio with Dr. Mark Brown, who's been on the show many times and a favorite guest of ours. And today we're going to get together and we're going to talk about a history of Lutheranism in America. Um, Mark's a theologian first and a historian second. Would that be... Or maybe wanted to be a historian and a theologian second. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> so, and we're going to skip our free-for-all because I think we got enough information to fill up a good uh, a good an hour with this this kind of stuff. And it won't be a this happened, then this happened, then this happened kind of survey. But uh, just uh, uh, Mark's thoughts on uh, the history of Lutheranism. And maybe if we have enough time and he's willing, say, where do you think Lutheranism's going in America as we look at, uh, with a reference point to the past uh, last 200 years or so. So um, I'm going to read our disclaimer and then we'll come back and we'll get right into the main topic. This show doesn't speak for our churches, our church bodies, or our employers. To be honest, much of the time it probably doesn't speak for us. We will be thinking out loud a lot. So approach what you hear with a healthy skepticism, because well as a responsible resident of planet Earth, that's probably what you should generally do with almost everything. If you find yourself getting too worked up, tune out, look around, and realize you were just listening to a podcast. That's right, a podcast. So go live free, friends, and don't let us get in the way. back. We're here uh, with uh, Mark Brown, as I said before, and our topic's going to be the history of Lutheranism in America. Uh, Mark studied um, history, historical theology, correct, at St. Louis Seminary? Yes. Um, Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, and is the author of A Tale of Two Synods, and so uh, a legit historian who got into the details of something, you know, not just, hey, I like history and I read uh, read a book here and there, but uh, somebody who actually dug in and did some of the, the, the grunt work that a historian needs to do. And so um, we're going to kind of just let him go and, and wherever he wants to go with this topic of history of Lutheranism in America, where have we been and perhaps where do you think we are going to go into the future? So uh, why don't you just take it away, Mark, and uh, start off wherever you want to go. Okay, well, I'm not sure where this is going to go, but I, I thought I should come a little bit prepared <laughs> so I can tell a little bit of a story here, which maybe is um, illustrative of where Lutherans fit. And I'm, I'm doing this fresh off having heard your broadcast with the young lady, I, I'm safe to call her a young woman, in Utah. Yep, Barb. Barb. And, and um, I know you told me about it at the time, and you said that there's a, a Facebook page for Wells Democrats, which I was very excited about, <laughs> even though I guess if I looked at my own record, I'm probably more independent, but that's exciting. And um, she talked a lot on her, dis- on her conversation with you about um, the Lutheran Church not being in the political scene as she had gotten to become familiar with sometimes with, with evangelicals, and that was one of our, our good points. So this is, this is something which, which happened to me, and I just printed a couple of stories to jog my memory. Um, in about 
October, this is the New York Times, October 9th, 2012, there was a headline which made it all over the country. Percentage of Protestant Americans is in steep decline. And um, it was at that time that there was a, uh, a Pew Research report that said that for the first time in all the time that they've been keeping track of numbers in American life, the total of Protestants in America had dipped below 50%. It was like 42, 49.2 something. And um, a couple of times the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel religion editor will call me, among other people, I'm sure to just get my take. And I always tell her, I don't want to be in the paper. So this is just background. But she called me and I remember being in the process of driving to Michigan at the time and she called, so I pulled over and called her back. And um, all I thought to say to her was, this is really just a point on a continuum which has been going on for a long time. I mean, you can go all the way back and talk about sort of the revolt against the mainline churches when the Baptists came along and the Methodists. Um, and whatever I told her didn't make the paper. Well, <laughs> but, that, but that was talked about a lot. And it was about a year later, in October of 2013, that I went to a panel discussion at Wheaton in a very evangelical school in the Chicago area. And it was supposed to be about the, uh, the place of the Bible and democracy in America. And there was an afternoon session, which I got there kind of late for, and I was in the back and watching the panel. And then I went back in the morning, and uh, f lots of evangelicals. And uh, what they kept discussing was the fact that they were no longer in the majority. They were going to be less than half the population. This is going to go in this way. And what is this going to mean for us as a church? And what was implied, I don't know how much it was clearly said, but it was implied that you simply must be in favor of kind of an amalgam of church and state so that as a church we can get what we want in the state. And uh, I don't like standing up at these things, but I, I did stand up and say, well, you know, some of us never have had the prospect of being 51% anyway. We've always known that. And we have not always necessarily equated power or position in the marketplace with our own religious identity. I says, I'm a Lutheran. And we practice more what we call the doctrine of the two kingdoms. And I said a little bit about it. And then one of the panelists urged me to say some more. So I gave a real simple, you know, not very involved discussion of what we believe about two, two realms. They're both under God's control. They have different purposes. They use different tools, yada, yada. Well, I knew that uh, Martin Marty was there for this conference. And it was kind of a surprising thing that evangelicals would invite him in the first place. But I guess he's, he, and he was in the panel on, on Friday, but he didn't notice that I was even there until uh, I'd made that comment because I'd, I'd had him in class once in Chicago. And he came up to me and he said, that could very well be the first time that most of the people in this group have ever heard about the two kingdoms. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I think one of the things you can talk about with Lutheranism is that it never expected to be the big player. Mm -hmm. And at various times in history, we found ourselves uh, being protected more by the fact that we were not expecting to be uh, working hand in glove with the government. We wanted to assert our independence, our, our uh, separation of church and state, if you want to put it that way, but at the same time, always demonstrating that we're good citizens. Mm -hmm. Our schools are not designed to, you know, create adjutants against the government, and and that was kind of hard during the anti-Germans sure. times. But um, 
And so we never expected to be in the majority, so to speak. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I had a, went to an evangelical school, too, and, and a brief conversation about the two kingdoms. And, and, and this, the, the classmate had heard about the two kingdoms, and his immediate response was, there's only one kingdom, there's only one God. Yeah, right, right. And, right. and, he, and, and, and yet I've, I've seen that creep in a little bit. I mean, that's a misunderstanding of, of the, the two realms. Um, but yeah, there's as intricate a, a kind of, and maybe not a well-known doctrine, it is really important to understand that uh, we're... <clears throat> The church does this thing over here, and the state does this thing over here. And if you mix the two, you inevitably mix law and gospel. Mm -hmm. And I think to the point of, well, these Protestant churches are declining, yada, yada, yada. Um, my success <laughs> as a church body is not determined by either political clout or cultural clout, if we can, we can talk about it that way. Um, those things are just, you, you look at the wrong thing to find your success or failure as a church body yeah but it's interesting that you brought up the the whole you know uh, lutherans quietism is probably not the right the right word but if you look at okay here are the the senators and the, uh, uh, the supreme court judges and these leading figures in our in our political history and there's a disproportionate amount of episcopalians compared to their size oh yes <laughs> and there is very few, very few, if any, that you can say, oh, that guy is, was Lutheran. Rehnquist was Lutheran. I can't think of too many other people that Ed, were. Ed there. Meese, who was okay. uh, Reagan's attorney general. Okay. So you, you don't have a whole lot there. And, and, and uh, maybe, maybe you can talk about that. Why is that? It's, it's not just, even if you took the numbers, okay, here's a percentage of Lutherans, Episcopalians, Baptists, whatever, um, that Lutherans, even for their small amount of numbers, in the population have an even less proportionate yes. number of people in elected office. Yeah. Christianity today did uh, some kind of a study in the sixties and they saw that they, they did um, compare the, the percentage of people per denomination in public life um, in comparison to their numbers here. And Lutherans were almost at the bottom of the list. And uh, I think historically, one reason for that is that we almost always came over speaking some other language. Mm -hmm. And we, um, we were there for some of the exotic kind of semi-outsiders. You know, I think the Protestant majority would look at Lutherans and, and not know what to make of them. Yeah. Certainly, Not, they not were, quite Italians, Hispanics, Irish, uh, but, but definitely not English. Too close to being Catholic, yeah. for one thing. And then... <clears throat> They seem, you know, in general, Protestants, uh, Lutherans seem to be on the conservative or pietistic end of the realm, especially when the, when the German Lutherans came in the mid-1800s. But, you know, we drank beer, and we defended our right to do it to the, to the nines, and we smoked, and we didn't keep a Sabbath like they did. So they, they didn't quite know what to make of us. And then, at least in, in terms of um, German Lutheran immigrants, our school system... Um, our Protestant, uh, our, our parochial school systems really kept us separated for a longer period of time. And, and separated politically, too, because politics often starts with the school board, the local, you know, I mean, I wonder if they're just, we weren't involved in the public school system, which meant less people involved in politics in general. Well, we, we weren't involved and we had a high level of distrust for it. I mean, my, my, in my own situation, when I was at um, what used to be Northwestern Prep, 
we were allowed to take a class in driver's ed at the at the public high school, which is the, the junior high. Now you just walk down the street and there it is. And we were a little terrified um, going into the public school building. And not just because these guys would tend to congregate and beat us up on the street if they saw us, but because we just weren't supposed to be there. Uh, I sat one time with a group of um, almost all pr school principals, Wells Lutheran school principals, and I'd done an extensive paper on the history of the schools and what our fathers taught us about the schools. And there was some discussion with the public schools. So one of my discussion questions for them was, could you conceive of any situation in which you would advise one of the children of your own congregational members that perhaps they should consider the public school? And it was unthinkable to them. Mm -hmm. And they went around the table expressing real um, horror at the idea and a little bit of horror at me. And then one of them said, I've never been inside of a public school. And they all looked around the room and they said, oh, we haven't been either. So we can say some very certain kinds of things about the public school system and have often had very little acquaintance with it. Now, that's probably different if you get outside the Midwest. Mm -hmm. but, that, but that tended to separate, as it did with Catholics, too. Mm -hmm. It tended to uh, keep the mother language longer. Mm -hmm. At least the church kept them out. And then, and then World War I was kind of a a crash course in becoming good Americans. Um, is it uh, oversimplification to say that there was two, I mean, there's more waves of Lutherans that came over, but two distinct ones, one that was fairly early, uh, Scandinavian and German, didn't set up public schools as much, or par parochial schools as much as a second wave of, um, I would say, probably mostly German, more rural farmers, kind of the... Uh, uh, the the wave of immigration that really started the Missouri Synod and the Wisconsin Synod, and that those are can we can we separate those two? That that's that, that's a big like like a sharpie distinction where it's pretty broad. Yeah, there, the, the, some Lutherans are coming in in the sixteen oh, teens, I think already sixteen twenties thirties. I remember reading a tidbit that uh, Luther's Catechism about sixteen thirty eight was the first document that was translated into one of these Native American languages, as they were probably putting the language into written form. Um, there were a few of those uh, schools and churches, churches that had schools, but I don't think it was ever um, a, a big part of their ministry. I just don't think they had a lot of money. They were separated by a lot of distance. And, you know, the Pennsylvania Ministerium starts in 1740. And probably Pennsylvania is a bigger ministerium than all the others in the colonies put together. They were not, they were not big numbers. Mm -hmm. um, and then there wasn't a lot of immigration from Germany and Scandinavian countries until the late 1830s. And then between, let's say, 1838 and the First World War, this was, Germans were the largest group of immigrants to come through. And that was predominantly um, up the Hudson, across the Erie Canal to Buffalo, into into Michigan, the Saginaw Valley, and somewhat in Detroit, across the Great Lakes into Milwaukee and Chicago and up the river to Minneapolis and Minnesota, Minnesota more than Minneapolis per se. And that was a huge, a huge number. And some of the stories you hear and read about that time uh, are just overwhelming. Churches in Chicago that had 500 baptisms a year. Mm -hmm. That's 10 every Sunday. Mm -hmm. um, August Pieper, when he was at St. Marcus, would say after church, Okay, all of you new, uh, new uh, immigrants uh, who are looking for a German church, just line up to join the church over here, you know, by the door. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, that is, you didn't have to go into the highways and byways. I mean, it was just such a huge numbering. And there was this kind of colloquial fear that in a triangle from Milwaukee to Cincinnati to St. Louis, that there would be actually a secession movement to attempt to form a a German <laughs> United States. <laughs> yeah, but there's a separation, I think, uh, uh, through those early uh, immigrants, maybe smaller numbers, a little bit more American in a certain sense, where these uh, big numbers that came over to the Midwest, a little bit more isolated, tend to keep their German or Norwegian or even whatever whatever ethnicity they had, kept their language, started their own schools, that kind of stuff. And, uh, and, and there, there's just a little bit of a difference there. Was that fair to say? Yeah, I think so. Now, Wisconsin's more rural than Missouri is. I mean, Missouri sets a beach at least in St. Louis and Chicago. And, um, so I think when you're in the city, you're forced to have more interactions with, mm-hmm. with the Americans, so to speak. But these, these rural areas, I mean, my, my great-grandmother came here in the 1860s and still spoke almost exclusively German when she died in the 1930s. And I think that's a lesson for any German-Americans now who say that other ethnic groups don't learn English fast enough. Mm-hmm. Um, it was more common, I think, to keep the German at church and at school um, because you'd, if, if you went in the parochial school because you'd have to have dealings with people in in English and other places. But if you're in a rural area and the, the church, your neighbors, the small towns are your life, uh, my my mother, I think, was the first class to be confirmed in English, and that was 1937. Mm-hmm. This is in central Wisconsin. My grandfather was convinced we were on the wrong side in World War II, <laughs> and he had great uh, uh, you know, he, he told me once kind of boastingly, he says, you know, Hitler's girlfriend, this is Ava von Braun. <laughs> I'm like about eight. He died when I was nine. And I said, I, I don't think I'm going to the playground and boasting about this. You know, they really and, and, and the historians sometimes say that the immigrants who came after 1870 did not necessarily come because they were so poor, because uh, Bismarck and, and the Kaiser had made Germany stronger and they came with some pride, mm-hmm. uh, not always to escape, but sometimes to transplant what they felt was a superior culture here. And then, as I say, in, in, in I think, 1910, only about 3% of synodical conference churches had, congregations had any activities in English. And then the war greatly hastened that. Mm-hmm. And you could say that Wisconsin is, you know, still feeling the effects of kind of a faster Americanization maybe than they look to do. Sure. Sure. Well, and that's true of every immigrant. I mean, when you lose the language, you're, there's the danger of losing the culture and maybe even your religion. And so you can you can understand um, a family from Mexico, Honduras or whatever, that the older generation does want to hold on to. They're happy to have their kids be successful and learn English, but to hold on to their heritage and, and something that I think we don't always appreciate on the let's say, the right side of the political spectrum today. Oh, no, I, I agree with you. Now, the, the leaders, the theological leaders in both Missouri and Wisconsin were saying, we, we have to work in English, we have to learn English. And the argument was made that the subtleties of Lutheran theology were, we'd committed communicating them in German for 300 years, we're not going to get those. But they said, no, we have to, we have to do this. And yet they themselves, um, the Pieper brothers, Kaler, um, uh, J.P. Meyer, 
they still predominantly worked in German mm-hmm. all through the rest of their lives. And ironically to me, it is, it is two men, I think, who were not theological giants in the st- sense of being the leaders of their seminary, but were um, much more on the front lines were Theodore Grebner in Missouri and John Brenner in Wisconsin, who English was their strength. And they, they in a lot of ways, shaped the English language for, for Synodical Conference Lutherans by writing, I mean, you're talking eight, ten editorials or more every other week in their English magazine. Mm-hmm. So they really spoke the positions of the Lutheran Church for the laity who was becoming Americanized more quickly. It gave them a vocabulary, I'm sure. Gave them a vocabulary. And, of course, they just so happened also to be the two big warriors on all the issues that were unpopular. Mm-hmm. I mean, the way they took on the lodges and scouts and and other Lutherans. And, you know, I mean, sure. they, they were the point people. Sure. And they had, that's another whole story, but they really had quite different endings in their careers and their lives. The two of them, but I would say in their, at, at, the, stre- at the height of their output, their strength, uh, they were really shaping the self-awareness of the church bodies. Anything to say, like theologically, not just the the synodical conference, uh, but just Lutheranism in a gen in a general way from very very early on. So, you know, like you said, even the 1600s, uh, Lutheranism as a presence on the in the East. Um, the trajectory of of uh, theology. Anything to say about that in the last? 200 years? <laughs> yeah, I have to. I should preface almost everything I say by saying when I talk about Lutheranism, I'm much more familiar with about the 8% that ours is compared <laughs> to all the rest. But, I mean, the middle colonies, um, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, were always the most comfortable places for not just Lutherans but others who were different from the, the English establishment. Um, I think there was a there was an acceptance of some customs which maybe were as much customary as theological for example sunday is the sabbath that they would hold on to because all their protestant neighbors had this um there was um i would characterize it as there was a uh, always was a presence of seeing lutheranism more as a a voice in the larger group rather than a confessional movement and so schmucker you know tried to uh, formalize that, I guess you'd say, by uh, you know coming with his 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 restatement, so to speak, of of the Augsburg Confession. When I got to know some ELCA historians and and uh, mostly historians, some theologians, I had to get used to a real big paradigm shift because for them, Schmucker's a good guy, mm-hmm. and you know they always rolled their eyes when they heard about Walther, <laughs> and uh, so so there was that difference. And so there, I think, going way back, there is a question of how. How Americanized do Lutherans become? What can they safely bend on? And are they giving up their doctrinal position when they did that? And then, you know, Walther was so different in that he never seemed to have any sense of lack of confidence. He, he felt it entirely within his ability and his desire to want to lecture all the rest of the Lutherans in the country. Mm-hmm. But he... he and, and there were even people from the outside that would marvel at Missouri's combination of being so missionary and growing so much at the same time so s- solid and unyielding on their doctrinal viewpoints. Mm-hmm. It attracted some people like early Wisconsinites, and it probably repelled others. Sure. I was kind of commented just on 
uh, my parish for 12 years, uh, a rural parish, and that's a Republican country for the most part, um, even in Minnesota. And uh, I often would quip, only half-joking, that they were American first and Lutheran second, and that wasn't very good. You weren't being a very good American if you were doing that. And uh, I wonder if that there's something to that where after a while, you know, you, you're, you, you see yourself as American with has certain kind of Protestant work ethic, that kind of things. And there was some slippage of the identity of being a Lutheran. I think, you know, the Protestant work ethic versus uh, the doctrine of vocation. There's, there's some subtle differences there that um, I think generation today would be kind of, Alar- not alarmed at, but curious about that, uh, that, uh, that the Lutheran way of looking at certain things doesn't always match up with their American way of looking at things. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, anything to that that you want <clears throat> to? Well, I was surprised when I started doing research in uh, the original Northwestern Lutherans. They started in 1914. And then the Lutheran Witness, the English... So the mag- a magazine for... Yeah, the, the magazine the for the lay people. Now it's called Forward in Christ. And then the comparable magazine in the Missouri Synod was uh, the Lutheran Witness, which actually started in the Cleveland area as an English magazine and then was kind of adopted at some point. But I was surprised to see how many of their pages they filled with reprints from what we might call evangelical, fundamentalist, Baptist articles about many subjects. Of course, they would turn around and criticize some anti-sacramental statement. But a lot of things that we might consider fundamentalist today, anti-dancing and uh, concern for separation of church and state and and political sides, one or the other. Um, I'm sure those early writers of the Northwestern Lutheran had to fill the pages and find, you know, they, they wanted to find some allies, I think, on some of their subjects. And I think especially, well, well, a man in the Missouri Synod wrote a book called Fundamentalism in the Missouri Synod in the 1960s. And he, he said, we're more fundamentalist than we want to acknowledge. Mm-hmm. And frankly, I think his book was kind in the sense that there was probably more fundamentalism there than not. Um, now, you would think, well, Missouri, at least a portion of Missouri, was moving toward the ELCA and the ALC. So they wouldn't be fundamentalist anymore. They certainly are not. And yet, in a poll of Missourians in the late 1960s. Now, this would be just before the uh, the, the walkout at St. Louis and the, the rupture. Uh, the question was asked, if if there were no Missouri Synod, where would you rather go? And they the majority would rather have gone to a Baptist church than to an ALC church. Mm-hmm. So there was still that sense. And um, I did a 20-year study of fundamentalism in the Wisconsin Synod to kind of mirror the Missouri Synod book. And uh, what I found is that on almost every social and political issue, we came down on the side of the fundamentalists. Mm -hmm. But when they asked us, are we fundamentalists, you know, should we maybe change the E to an F, there was always the uniform kind of stock answer, we are not fundamentalists because yada, yada, yada. And, um, And there was some backlash on that too, you know, that... Some some letter writers who understood this is what, what what's turning into us here that we're we're opposed to this and this and this and there was one memorable article in which the writer urged people to to boycott Disney World because <laughs> of some of the things that were going on in some Disney films and how far are we going to go on that I, I think we still have that that tendency in our makeup sure that we're conservative american and we just happen to be lutheran yeah right yeah yeah i 
I, I, I saw that being played out, and certainly we're going to be on the conservative side of a lot of political issues. Um, just it's it's just the nature of things. But uh, the, some of the nuance gets lost a little bit, and and uh, we're like I said, Republican, American first, and then just happened to be Lutheran. I can think of my grandfather's generation. Billy Graham was was great. Oh yes, and then just a little asterisk on the, you know, about decision theology at the end, you know, but it didn't really bother them that, you know, the sacraments were, the sacraments were just kind of a, you well, know, you this wish, little thing that had, you know. Yeah, you wish the power would go out the last 15 minutes of a Billy Graham sermon <laughs> that he wouldn't get to that, that altar call, but, oh yeah, members would say, isn't Billy Graham a great mm-hmm. preacher? And I would sometimes say, well, when you've had one sermon that you've preached for 40 years, you, you get to know it pretty well. <laughs> yeah, but there is that, I, and I, I wonder if there was a, you know, was it the greatest generation? Was it the uh, the generation before that really had a kind of a switch from going to we're German, we speak German, that kind of stuff, and now to hey, we really like Billy Graham, and we you know we we are this distinction between Lutheran and evangelical is a peculiar thing, but that not that big of a deal. Was that was that World War One and World War Two? Well, during World War One, you've already had the fundamentalist. The fundamentals tracks coming out mm-hmm. for quite a while, and we were certainly aware of them. And while we criticized some things in them, you know, Edward Frederick, my old uh, church history professor, he said, We love the fundamentalists for the enemies they made <laughs> because they opposed the same things that we did, which would be you could categorize under the larger umbrella of modernism. And uh, we probably still have a sense that it's better because it's old. You know, we're more that way than it's better because sure. it's new. Um, when you get to World War II, then I think evangelicalism is rising. And this isn't the kind of evangelicalism that we see now so much, which is so highly entertainment-driven and, and, and megachurch and a little un, quite unclear, actually, about what they're trying to accomplish. But it's the first wave of evangelicals that, that was conservative and biblically quite um, uh, in line with what we would say. And so we could say, well, if it wasn't for the sacraments or if it wasn't for their millennial streaks, there's a lot of things that we would go for. In fact, Robert Price was part of the, some of the evangelical groups on the Council on Biblical Inerrancy. I mean, they, they felt they spoke their language enough. Mm-hmm. And the argument was, well, if we can agree on a conservative position of the Bible, then at least we have a basis for conversation. We can talk about the passages. But if you're dealing with the liberal side where the passages don't matter as much, then what's your base to talk about things? So, um, but, you know, and of course there was also a strong sense on the other hand that we had admiration for Catholics for their schools, Mm -hmm. for their unbelievable devotion to elementary education and everybody went to Catholic school and, you know, you, they all had nun stories and how they grew and developed and internally now, I guess you could say that they learned more how to go to church than that they learned the church's sure. doctrine. But but still, you know, there were things that we admired about them. And some people would say, well, if you really look at all of these different waves, we have more in common with Catholic culture sure. in a lot of ways than we did with the Protestant culture. Uh, you can maybe even see it in the architecture. So you can, uh, the buildings that were built in the first couple waves of our synods, um, you know, uh, immigration, look like Roman Catholic churches. But, yeah. you know, after a while, we started building A-frames. And I, it was cheaper, and I get that and stuff, but purposely plain, right? And uh, uh, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to tell that uh, besides the, the, 
the name on the front, the difference between a Methodist church and a Lutheran church. But in 1920 or 30, the, it would have been, well, probably all denominations had, had that extra sense of beauty and, and uh, in, in architecture. But you couldn't tell the difference between a Lutheran church and a Catholic church in Milwaukee, perhaps, unless you looked at the sign or the size or something like that. I had, I had a, we had a beautiful neo-Gothic church in, where I served, and we had a, a Wells person who had moved to the area, not very close enough, and, and we were probably three churches away from them, but they were trying out the churches in the area. And they kept driving. We, had, we were in the midst of getting a new sign, and they kept driving past the one church in town. Basically, there was two churches, but one that actually looked like a church, because they <laughs> they figured it was Roman Catholic because mm-hmm. it was beautiful. And they finally stopped to ask direct, you know, ask directions. Yeah. Uh, you, I mean, I think there that cultural kind of that uh, we actually do have quite a bit more with the Catholic immigrant keeping our language, schools. Um, a little bit exotic, as you said, um, compared to maybe uh, some of the more mainline Protestants uh, that uh, that uh, helped start uh, the United States of America. But I think a lot of a lot of our Lutheran ancestors would have bristled had we said that, mm-hmm. because they really doctrinally really identified themselves as I'm not Catholic. Sure. But I think I think the stories of some of the churches too just. You know, the first building I think of Grace Downtown. It's a very, I guess you'd call it a Federalist building, quite unadorned and, you know, almost like a, a meeting hall, but made out of brick. And then, when they built the big church in 1901, part of it was to say we've arrived, mm-hmm. and Catholics did that too. They built their really imposing churches when the immigrants had made some money. There were some families of standing, and they wanted to show we've arrived. And yet, liturgically, Wisconsin did not keep up with that. Mm-hmm. So you have. John Brenner being the pastor at that beautiful St. John's on 8th and Valite, which was judged by somebody the most beautiful Lutheran church in America, for certainly, maybe maybe everywhere, you know. And yet he was reluctant about some aspects of liturgy. When the uh, 1941 Hymnal Committee was meeting, he made comments uh, in print that, you know, Lutherans, our Lutherans don't really care about too much of this stuff in here, you know. They want the good hymns. And they were working on they were working on better hymns, too. They complained about the, the you know, the sankey, moody kinds of sure. revivalist hymns. So in some ways, the liturgy didn't follow the building in, in Wisconsin the way it had in Missouri. And then sure. we caught on to the, um, the liturgical movement late. Sure. And not with both feet in it, sure. by sure. any means. Maybe a little, uh, not an identity crisis is too big of a, a word there, a phrase there, but uh, we're not Catholic, we know that, <laughs> but are we not Baptist, right? And yeah, kinda... well, and I think, I think uh, again, I, when I talk about the Lutherans, I'm thinking about our little group, but, you know, that was something Frederick says in his book, The Wisconsin Lutherans. He said, these early, pa- you know, he was always very charitable toward Milhoiser, who was, probably in his heart a good Lutheran, but was pretty open to reform. And to, to a lot of the early kinds of German Lutherans that we gathered, you know, we didn't come over together on the boat mm-hmm. and have a historian along because we thought we were going to do something great. So um, he said that these, these pastors who were not necessarily deeply trained in Lutheranism, the line between Lutheran and Catholic was clear. But the line between Lutheran and some of the reform groups was not nearly as clear. And could they serve both in a pinch? Could they see the all, all the things they had in common? 
and try to work together? Was it such a big deal to share a building mm -hmm. and perhaps sometimes share services? That was hard on that on that first generation. Mm -hmm. And I think although Mielhoiser is our founder, our synodical founder, John Mielhoiser, is almost always pictured as a kindly, very pastoral man, big heart. Uh, maybe it's significant that only months after he died, Wisconsin pastors started making overtures to Missouri mm -hmm. saying, come and talk with us. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we think we are getting where you are, mm -hmm. which Walther must have all but scoffed at at first and later came to be convinced that. So Mielheiser must have held his, had his imprint on this group as long as he was alive. Yeah, I, I, I don't know how accurate this is historically, but uh, being from having some roots in Michigan, the, uh, the, the early Lutherans that came over there, and so very early on before Wisconsin Synod was even a, a thing, um, had trouble getting Lutheran missionary pastors to come serve. And so, well, there's a Methodist guy there. And so a lot of these maybe Methodist churches or classic Reformed churches, at least on the eastern side of Michigan, um, were kind of there and they went their direction not Lutheran um, just for practical reasons. Yes. Right? There wasn't, and so uh, I wonder if that, that's a, one of those quirks of history where Michigan does not have as many Lutherans as um, uh, Wisconsin, Iowa, Minnesota, that uh, very early on, things went in a different direction just for practical reasons. I think that's part of it. And I also think that what you've got in the individual histories of the old Michigan Synod, the original Wisconsin Synod, and the Minnesota Synod, I'm going to forget names here now, is that each of them had a, a resourceful, or maybe more than one, resourceful missionary who was not necessarily too insistent about Lutheran differences. But then they were all countered by individuals and families that had a more conservative viewpoint. So in Michigan, in, in Town Sio and around Ann Arbor, you had that from the 1830s already, this zealous missionary who was, whose name I can't remember. But then there was a more orthodox group in the Saginaw Bay area. They kind of won. You know, you had Mielhäuser in Milwaukee, but you had pastors who were trained in a more Lutheran way, and you have um, um, Heineke, Adolf Heineke, and John Bodding to kind of change the direction of Minnesota. You have, you have that hire, I think his name was, who went to India because he was such a missionary. But there were some other families that, that came. So there was this little sort of an internal battle, usually kindly, I guess. And sometimes the Wisconsin or, or Michigan or Minnesota Synod members would look to their Missouri neighbor and say, I, I, I think I want to come to your side. Mm -hmm. And there are stories about the Missouri pastor saying, no, you stay where you are and be a good influence. You know, I'll be your friend and support you, but help your church to grow that way. And, uh, and so there, you know, there was this rejecting some of the ways that, that I, I mean, and like for a person like Mielhäuser, he comes to Milwaukee, it's, it's wide open frontier here. One of the ways that academics picture this is they look at the, they look at the ratio of how many men per 100 women are in the population. The higher the, the overflow of men is to women, the rowdier it is. And Milwaukee had one of the highest numbers in the country in 1850. It was a frontier town. And uh, so Mielhäuser says, look, I extend the hand of fellowship to anybody who looks as Christ as a savior. Because even a lot of the Germans that were coming, they were Catholic, they were rationalistic and free thinkers. Those were the enemies. And um, I suppose that 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 way of doing things happens in mission fields today. Mm -hmm. You're far from home. 
there's hardly anybody who's like you and you tend to accentuate the things that you can agree upon. Um, and then you might come back home and want to bring that same mm-hmm. sensitivity back home, but at home they never went through that. Yeah, that's interesting to bring up Milwaukee, just uh, learning a little bit more about the history that uh, it wasn't always this nice conservative town, right? There was actually quite a bit of socialism, oh. and there was I mean, a frontier town and in, in probably there. Well, yeah, and, and and you get to the early 1900s, it was the early socialists, like the Zeidler family, that, that cleaned stuff up. You know, there's still stories about Mayor Rose, and you can only catch him in his office in the morning because he was probably down at the, you know, one of the prostitutes' place on Water Street after lunch. And it was it was a lot of corruption. And, and uh, you know, it's a little bit like Paul being in Corinth, I think, <laughs> when you hear some of the stories. But... Um, uh, so, so you know, Lutheranism was in so many ways not ideally. I mean, they didn't fit in exactly with the with the prevailing culture, mm-hmm. and I'm sure we lost a lot of people because of one issue or another like that. Sure, sure. Let's maybe take a, a broader look, just maybe a historical. And again, I'm going to be uh, uh, make it too simplistic, but so early on, you have. Uh, these groups that are getting together like a ministerium, not quite a synod, you know, so there's Pennsylvania, there's a group, right, New York, uh, basically named by the states, not always, but, and then you have um, some amalgamations that end up being into the ALC and the, and the LCA, and then you have the second wave, uh, which eventually becomes Missouri, Wisconsin, you have the ELS and Norwegians and, and a couple other ones. And then, of course, the merger in of ELCA in the late 80s. And then since there, there's actually been a little bit of a break-off. Mm-hmm. Now we have some smaller groups that have, a, have emerged. And uh, I, I think that's probably typical of a lot of things in, in America where there's, well, there's breweries in every little town. And then you have bigger breweries, right? And then you have an explosion of microbreweries after that, you know, uh, 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 maybe a, a move against this kind of not corporate's not the right word, but uh, big, cheap kind of kind of stuff. I think maybe you see that in a lot of different places. It sort of mirrors um, uh, church denominations as well. So, w- w- what do you think about that? That there was these big mergers into basically ELCA and then the synodical conference, uh, if we can put it that way, um, or the old synodical conference uh, at that time. Uh, more conservative, I'd say, confessional, and then kind of a breaking down of that in the recent last, say, almost a generation. Hmm. Yeah, a lot of history there. Uh, well, first of all, you're right that, that the Pennsylvania Ministerium and other ministeria, I guess you'd say, were really um, almost like fraternities of pastors. And in some cases, they were quite broad in what they were willing to tolerate, that they would say you can join if you don't speak against certain things, even if you have misgivings yourself. For example, about lodge membership and the so-called Galesburg rule for only Lutheran pulpits for Lutheran pastors. Um, And I I think the first element that caused more of a reshuffling had to do at the time of the Civil War. Now, I don't know if it's because of the Civil War, but what happens is the wars... First World War does this for sure, but the Civil War too maybe brought the Lutherans out of their their own local geographies and stuff, and and seeing other Lutherans like them, and finding out well, no, what really is different about us, 
and why aren't we together more? So there is this, um, the General Synod is formed in 1820, but it was very general. The General Synod of these combination of ministeria is very comparable to the sort of the, the, the format of the ELCA today in terms of sort of the assumption that we can't agree on everything, so we're not really going to try beyond, you know, a certain sense. Um, but then after the Civil War, there is the, um, uh, the, um, the, the, what is it, not the General Synod, but the, there's another General Council, and these, these were going to, these groups were there, they had open free conferences to try to determine um, which of these groups are really more confessionally Lutheran? And usually the standard was, did you have the unaltered Augsburg Confession or did you, were you willing to compromise some of them? And as it turns out, uh, Missouri never was going to join. Wisconsin was kind of in, but was out right away. Michigan went in, but then came out. And so it was out of that rejection of both the General Council and the General Synod that these Midwestern Lutherans got together more. And so the Synodical Conferences formed originally with the Ohio Synod in it also, which is pretty far east, but then several synods left because of um, schisms over election in the 1880s. So the, the, the old LCA, which forms after World War I, is basically on the East Coast, I mean, pr primarily in those, those churches that have been the general synod. The old American Lutheran Church, or ALC, really was the formation of Ohio, Iowa, and Buffalo, which were all Midwestern, more German synods, and they came very close to um, coming to some sort of a union, I, I guess I'd call it that, by the late 1920s. But Missouri, for Wisconsin, Missouri first, then Wisconsin also said, we still haven't resolved some of our differences. And then those three, in turn, turned around in 1930 and said, all right, then we'll form the American Lutheran Church. So the American Lutheran Church, the ALC, was really much closer mm -hmm. to the Synodical Conference. <clears throat> But after World War I, too, there was this, this whole sense of merger being in the air and let's, you know, find each other and work together with each other. And then there always was the question was how much, uh, what level of agreement must we have to, to, to work together? How much are we willing to accept? And so that was, and then in the 1960s, I think what happens, you have a massive realignment, which was really painful but necessary. I mean, there were a lot of people in Missouri, maybe more, clergy and professors than all the people who um, were really not rightly placed in Missouri in terms of their sympathies and, and their beliefs in some cases the um, you know there was truly a civil war in the Missouri Synod and so the, the the ELCA being formed in Missouri not joining and never Wisconsin never was going to join in a sense kind of lay, uh, realign the, the, the Lutheran synods in a way that is more in keeping with what people believed, although I think the big loser is the ALC in this. Mm -hmm. They were kind of in the middle. Mm -hmm. And with the merger, I think they were the losers on that. And I wonder if it, the lines then, in a simplistic way to the masses, is liberal or conservative. That's your only choice kind of thing, and everything's liberal or conservative, which loses a little bit of the nuance. Well, yeah, I'll even say in class that I don't even want to hear students using the words liberal and conservative, unless we agree upon the right. subject we're talking about. They're uh, lazy terms often. Well, they, they're fighting terms, and they, they mean one thing to one person or to another. I mean, so you could have a church member who thinks he's very conservative because he never liked the idea of a pastor being in an alb. Mm -hmm. I mean, in the sense, he's a conservative for holding on to the past, but it's really... No. <laughs> I mean, I mean the, 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 the old LCA, 
in the 1920s and 30s was already saying things about the inerrancy of scripture which were troublesome. And by the 1930s and 40s, the ALC was had was open to some of that. And then now we're finding out in the 50s already, um, at least some professors at St. Louis were open to that too. Uh, uh, my own graduate instructor who was at Concordia in the early 50s says, I never heard the word inerrancy at St. Louis. Um, authority, yes, but not inerrancy. And so, you know, on one level you can say it has to do with the um, with the regard for scripture. And yet, even among us, it's possible for inerrancy to become kind of a weapon mm-hmm. where we're going to use it to be a border marker and say you're in, you're out, and whether you have it in your constitution or not is is a dividing line. And yet, very often, it's difficult to go back to some of these difficult pa- texts and say, well, how do you hold on to an inerrant Bible, you know, when, when you when you still see this and this and this. And you've probably had conversations with more liberal pastors, too, who would say, what do you do with this? What do you do with that? What, how do the sun stand still? <clears throat> and then they'll say, you're the ones that are defending that everything in here is, is correct. Uh, what do you have to say about this? I think today it's much more about social issues. I think it's significant that the ELCA never attempted to have inerrancy I shouldn't say never attempted. There were probably internal battles. But that was never a part of their constitution. Mm-hmm. And yet that did not really cause great consternation in the church body until that principle was applied to the passages that talk about gender mm-hmm. and sexuality. Mm-hmm. And a whole generation of ELC members could say, where did we come up with something like this? Doesn't this passage say this and this and this? And then they're finding out, well, you have to understand those passages cult- culturally conditioned. Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, that's what Paul said. He was a first century Jew. What else right. would he say? But we now know, sure. you know, through social science or whatever. And so there have been fallout about things like that. Yeah. So what do you make about, uh, not an explosion would be too big of a word, but there since that since the merger in the late 80s between the ALC and the LCA to form the ELCA, there has been splinter groups or however you want to call them the american lutheran church there's the lcmc there's quite a few what what do you make of there are more options now well but they're not i mean with the exception of the nalc i don't think they're very big groups no and they tend i mean we've had a little bit of this history in wisconsin Synod too uh and and by and large if you want a a neat common denominator for some of the fallout in the wisconsin Synod, it had to do with the question of authority in the church and the nature of what role the uh, district officers and the seminary faculty have to determine, uh, I mean, why why August Pieper was in the middle of the Protestant controversy, I still can't quite figure out. But um, for some, it's just too much of the bigness uh, of the slickness of, of this big organization. Uh, the ELCA determined when they were forming that they would have quotas for all of their leading offices. Uh, how do you do ethnic and racial quotas in a Lutheran church body? Because you're still going to have a predominant population from from certain ethnic groups in sure. Europe. I mean, you you um, you read if if you take the time, and I haven't done a lot of this, but to read some of the the uh, memoirs of people who were involved in the in the formation of the ELCA, uh, it's it's they certainly have their reservations about how some of the things occurred mm-hmm. the way they did and some of the problems that they faced. And I think there are people in certain locations, they often have strong pastoral leadership or regional leadership that just don't want to be part of the big is better movement. So you have, it's hard to keep up with these groups, but they're they're small groups that 
sometimes are, are simply the extension of several personalities when those personalities are no longer on the scene. Where do they go? In other cases, there are old issues that were never really resolved. Um, Lutherans have not gone through what Baptists have gone through. I mean, there's something like 80 or 90 different groups in the United States and over all these issues that they disagreed with for a couple of centuries. And so, you know, free will versus versus um, you know, Calvinist. They've never really settled this, so sure. they go off to their own locations. Yeah, sometimes I don't know if it's, it's, if it's our own kind of self-hate that we, why can't we all get along and Lutherans are always fighting? Well, it's because we're human beings, and if you look in any other organization, religious or not, you're going to find splinters and groups and personalities and all this kind of stuff. It's, it's not actually that unique to religion and specifically Lutheranism. Well, I think it is somewhat unique to Lutheranism and some other bodies. Um, the Lutheran Historical Conference had a, um, a joint historical conference with some Anglican groups, uh, Episcopal groups. And there really are two different kinds of cultures in terms of peace-loving and, <laughs> and tolerant, more tol- we would say tolerant to a fault sometimes, versus our insistence on certain things. I remember sitting at lunch with one of the very sweet Anglican women who just said to me, you Lutherans fight a lot, <laughs> don't you? And I was, I was grateful that I didn't say what I was thinking, which is, well, you know, Chesterton says that tolerance is the, is the quality of people who don't believe much of anything in particular. But, but, but I think our doctrinal issues have been important to us. And unlike many of the Protestants that came over and there was this kind of, um, what should I say, kind of a cross-pollinating on some of these issues, even you look at evangelical uh, publications today, well, now they're revisiting this doctrine or this, this issue which had been settled. You know, the Lutherans had their, their confessions to separate them, and they had their language differences and their culture differences. Um, but, um, you know, I would even say, now you think about around here, and you've got um, many students who come to college, and they're confronted for the first time with issues that they didn't know existed. And I'm talking about some of our Wells and, and Missouri Lutheran, and they, you know, so we'll, we'll sometimes feel the need to talk about some things that we don't believe so that they'll know about it. And I think this is true in any part of our, certainly it's true in the Old Testament. And um, so you do that, and, and you can sometimes spark a certain amount of resistance to it and, and maybe some anger about this. And then there will be those who will say, you know, it's terrible that we disagree about these things and can't just find a lower common denominator. But I would say, I think it's a healthy thing to see that people care that much about their religion. Mm-hmm. If you come into college and your English teacher convinces you that Shakespeare didn't write half those plays that are attributed to him, well, that's bothersome for English majors and that's something to think about, but in the end you live with it. Mm-hmm. But if you come to college and things you've learned are significant for your faith, are challenged or thrown out, I'm, I'm glad they cared enough to be bothered by it. Sure. <laughs> Sure. Yeah. And I think the difference, you know, Lutherans and Baptists, perhaps on one side, they're going to divide themselves by doctrine much more than the Roman Catholic Church, where there's a diversity of doctrine, but we're all under the same umbrella. You know, we still hold to uh, papal authority or even in the the, the larger Anglican Church, um, you know, not so much defined by doctrinal, but but by worship practices, by the their tenure conference, those kinds of things is is a different way of fighting, <laughs> or mm-hmm. the or the 
the fallout from the fighting is going to be quite a bit different where, uh, you know, Americans, Lutherans and American Baptists are like new church. That's the solution. New, you know, a new congregation. As we close, we got maybe uh, five or 10 minutes here. Uh, I know historians hate this question, but uh, looking back and now looking forward, where, what, what, not to, that you have to make predictions, but what do you see in the future for Lutheranism in America? Uh, I think for a lot of people, uh, denominations just aren't that important anymore. Um, and in a certain sense, um, it's not always a bad thing to say, I need to find where the gospel is being preached. I'm all for denominational loyalty. Um, at the same time, there is a wishy-washy idea of doctrine and truth. And where do I go where I feel comfortable? Uh, where do I go where I like the worship style? I like the pastor. I like the people kind of thing. So where, where, where do you see Lutheranism going? Yeah, you're right. We don't like to predict the future. <laughs> and some of the people who are on TV predicting the NBA finals should get out of that business too, <laughs> I think. Um, well, maybe this is a time somewhat comparable to the 1850s and early 60s in that many people who came as immigrants to the Midwest and were culturally Lutheran, but poorly educated and long separated from regular word and sacrament, didn't really know where they were. And so the concept of these free conferences was to have a, a base, you know, do you agree at least this much? And then can we talk about some more of these things? And the church takes on very much of a teaching role beyond its 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 own congregations. I mean, I think Walther, Walther launches, um, uh, which is which, the Lutheraner, I guess I forget which is first, but he launches them even before there is a Missouri Synod because he's there, because he feels he's there to talk about mm -hmm. uh, what Lutheran what Lutheranism says and how it compares to what the sects of Protestantism are saying. And I think rather than having to call a free conference in some kind of a somewhat primitive way by our way of thinking, now we've got the internet where people can put out their their viewpoints and you know the 1517 legacy and others are putting are, are are casting their message out onto the water so to speak and who knows who's going to align with that um at the same time that many others who have a lutheran ethnic and religious heritage are uh, going to become maybe evangelical for a while and then maybe spiritual and not religious and and then they become virtually completely heathen again and could be claimed all over again in a couple generations that would be optimistic um, I suppose some of the some of the issues that are against us are are uh, a disdain by a lot of ch even our church members for uh, liturgical worship. I mean, I hear so many stories where churches, the pastors, I suppose, the worship committees, fought the contemporary services, one of their two or three offerings on the weekend, and. Uh, then they started it, and now that's the most attended service. I mean, I hear that story over and over. Um, that's I, I don't know if there's going to be a real resurgence in another generation finding uh, the history and, and, and the beauty of it and the transcendence to be to their liking. I, I just don't know. Um, one, one church analyst said that churches will grow in the 21st century where people are comfortable hugging each other in the narthex. <laughs> and at the time I read it, I thought, we're in big trouble. But there's, there's, there's more hugging going on in narthexes too, to the point that it, it makes me a little uncomfortable sometimes uh, 
I'll see guys from school, and they'll, they'll even ask me, like almost for permission, uh, are you a hugger now? And I said, no, <laughs> not, not so much, not yet. Um, I, you know, I'm tempted to say that these things are going to be cyclical and what the, almost like the immigration movement itself, you know, the, what, the, what the son tends to forget, the grandson wants to remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't think things are propitious for Lutheranism and in some ways for traditional Christianity in general in our culture. It's, it's moving west, it's moving south, mm-hmm. and it will be reshaped. You talk about the Lambeth Conference. It must be so interesting but also so controversial when they have the Lambeth Conference and the distinct minority in the western countries uh, doubt the uh, reliability of scripture, uh, are supportive of gay marriage, and the majority who doesn't have the money but mm-hmm. who are conservative and say, yeah, but this is what the Bible says. Right. And how does how do those battles come out? I, I don't know. Yeah, it'll be interesting to find out and we'll have to raise up a new generation of historians to write yeah, all this stuff yeah, down. Yeah, say how wrong we were. I would just say, too, just to close it, I, I sometimes, you know, this conference uh, subject sometimes comes up about, well, is denominationalism a good thing? Um, it is still true, I think, that people if they want to do something bigger than their church, their congregation can do, um, denominations are an easy place to organize things. Um, a college, um, a, uh, some kind of hospital or, or urban ministry or something like that. They tend to band together for things like that. It's a ready thing. Um, but I, I would also say if it just devolves into, well, you're Lutheran, this is bad. Well, you're Catholic, this is bad. Then it's like the, you know, the Bears and the Packers, and you just kind of line up for party reasons. And there are some parts of Lutheran culture, as we know it today, I could gladly live without. Sure. But some of the things that the Lutheran, uh, that Lutheran doctrine emphasizes and that Lutheran culture reflects, um, the sense that we have that we don't wear our faith in our hearts on our sleeves. I would rather have somebody find out that I'm a Christian by the integrity of what I do, then that I would walk into a place and, you know, the first thing I would think of was to make my testimony. You know, and I'm a really good Christian here. Mm-hmm. You really set yourself up that way. I think that there are some qualities of our culture that have grown out of our doctrine that I would hate to lose. And I don't think I would ever, you know, if they closed all the Lutheran churches, um, if the government did that, let's say, I would be missing that those elements the rest of my life, even if I found some surprisingly good things at some other churches. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that's just me. Sure. Well, thank you for uh, taking the time out here um, and talking with us about the history of Lutheranism. Uh, uh, no matter what, uh, we have the promises of God that uh, the church is not going to go away. It is going to be forever, and the, the gospel reign, as we have said, may... Uh, drop here and then uh, the clouds may move on to another place and and uh, that that may be the case we don't know we don't know the future and uh, certainly as we look in the past we can see patterns but we certainly can't uh, make conclusions necessarily about the future but it sure is fun to think about those kinds of things and so I'm I'm glad that you took the time out and uh, and uh, chatted with me about the history of Lutheranism in America and with that gospel freedom of course knowing that all is well because of what Christ did at the cross uh, one of the great things about Lutheranism is that we uh, do talk about freedom and so um, until next time leaders are Uh, listeners I should say Uh, there's only one thing left to do Mark 
Let the bird fly. Uh, every evening when the sun goes down, get with my party and I begin to cry. I don't care what the people are thinking. I'm not drunk, I'm just a tank. I set them up another round. I set them up another round. I set them up another round. One more round won't get me down.